Hey, what's up, psychos? Welcome to another episode of Take Your Pills, Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. What? Trademark. I'm your host, John F. O'Donnell, JFOD. Thank you for listening into this bonus episode. Thank you for listening into this patrons-only episode. That means you are supporting the show financially, which means the world to me. Thank you for doing that. It's why I can keep doing this show. It's why I get to keep being a comedian. So yeah, your support is deeply, deeply appreciated. And I've got a great episode lined up for all of us today. I have looked through the interwebs. I've scoured the interwebs to find some interesting articles about psychology, psychiatry, etc. For us to go through, for me to read, give some commentary on so we can learn together about some interesting thing that's going on because the brain is so complicated. It's oh so complicated and new information is coming out every day. So we can sift through some of that and see how we feel about it. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be doing this for all of us. Um, Generally speaking, I'm doing pretty well. Had a fun show Friday at Cobra Club. Live from Outer Space is the name of the weekly stand-up comedy show I do with my friends. It is the longest-running independent comedy show in Brooklyn at this point. We figured that out, which is pretty wild that we're still going after all this time. We've been doing the show for over nine years since like May of 2013 is when it started. So that's pretty exciting. And we had a fun one. I had a really, really had a lot of fun on stage. It was great hanging out with people afterwards. It was an all around good night. So that was pretty cool. Um, Yeah. So that was good. And what else? I'm just doing my thing, man. Working on my podcast, working on my stand-up, you know, doing my thing. I'm going to start. All right, psychos, let me get honest with you. I'm going to start putting some more energy toward trying to find somebody, trying to find some companionship. I haven't really put a lot of energy towards it in quite a while, but I think that it's time. I think I need to get over some of my shit about my uh, anxiety of being of being with somebody because I'm scared I might hurt them. I have to realize that, you know, I'm doing well, I'm on top of my shit, and that maybe I deserve some happiness in that arena as well. So I'm going to pursue that some more. Am I going to do the apps, the dating apps? I do not think so. I don't want to drive myself crazy with more, uh, you know, online-based, social media-esque, dating-based nonsense. So I'm going to go for the IRL thing. I'm going to go for the in real life situation. And I guess here and there in broad strokes, I'll let you guys know how things are developing with that. Because, hey, this is behind a paywall. I could talk about it a little bit. So, yeah, that's what's going on with me. But anyway, um, if any of you want to drop me a line to say hello, to let me what's going on with you, let me know what is going on with you psychologically or otherwise, feel free to email me at takeyourpillspod at gmail.com and we can get a we can get a little email dialogue going on. Sounds good to me. Um, all right, let me give you an overview of what we're going to be going uh, through today. We've got a piece entitled Are Psychopaths Reptilian? Interesting, intriguing title. Because as you know, uh, this podcast is called Take Your Pills Psychopath. We use psychopath in the uh, in the general sense, in the colloquial sense, even though it is a real diagnosis. So we'll see what that piece is about. Then we've got three ways to not feel overwhelmed anymore. All right, that seems worthwhile to learn about in this highly, highly overwhelming world with which we live in our overwhelming society where a new shitstorm of something or other is coming out every freaking day. These articles, by the way, are from Psychology Today, which is a great place to find some information. Next piece, another uh, listicle, so to speak. Seven ways to deal with high-conflict personalities. Okay, good to know would be a good thing to learn about. Then this next piece is from SciTech Daily. 
Uh, the title of it kind of gives away a lot of what it's about, but uh, it's a short piece, but we'll read through it anyway. Shocking new study finds that 43.5% of rivers worldwide have an alarming amount of pharmaceutical pollution. All right, that is troubling. Next piece, also in SciTech Daily. Harvard developed AI identifies the shortest path to human happiness. What? All right, we're going to have to delve into that, see if that holds up. AI figuring out the shortest path to happiness? Hmm. I'm skeptical, mildly freaked out, also intrigued. And yeah, so that's what we're going to go over today. And I got a couple other things lined up. If we have time, we might do one or two other pieces as well. But we're going to start with those and see where it takes us. Cool. So let's get into it, psychos. Here we go. First piece. This is called Are Psychopaths Reptilian? Subtitle, Psychopaths are often likened to snakes and called reptilian. Here's why. And this is by Winifred Rule. Okay. What images are conjured by the word reptile? A snake devouring its prey after either strangling or poisoning it? A crocodile submerged just below the water's surface so only its eyes are visible, ready to strike? Or perhaps an unblinking lizard soaking in the heat of the sun? Psychopaths are often said to be akin to reptiles, but how so and why? Interesting. I didn't even hear that psychopaths are often said to be akin to reptiles. Have you guys? I don't know. I don't know. The psychopath and the reptilian cerebrotype. Okay. Prominent psychopathy researcher Dr. J. Reed Malloy, in his seminal work, The Psychopathic Mind, Origins, Dynamics, and Treatment, presented his hypothesis establishing the reptilian cerebrotype, meaning brain structure, as an anatomical underpinning for the psychopath's personality disorder. Okay. After noting that the human brain's limbic structures are key to affection and emotions, Malloy points out that they that they are absent in reptiles and then states psychopaths share with the reptilian cerebrotype an inability to socialize in a consciously affectionate and genuinely expressive manner. Whoa. The reptilian brain has the capacity to hunt, defend its territory, feed, mate, compete, and display aggression and dominance. These also happen to be traits that characterize most most psychopaths. The reptilian stare. According to Dr. Jacqueline Helfgott, quote, Clinical observations support the idea that psychopaths engage in acts of visual predation or a reptilian stare. Growing up in a home with a psychopathic mother and sister, I experienced this all too often. It was an icy, cold, distant, unfeeling, yet penetrating look. Media depictions of psychopaths often focus on the eyes, stressing they are emotionless or hollow. Even the popular primer on psychopathy, Robert Hare's Without Conscience, features on its cover a pair of eyes, deep set and without pupils, staring at the reader. Some say a psychopath's eyes are cold and foreboding, the eyes of a predator, while others say they have a hypnotic stare or a look of emptiness akin to the eyes of a reptile. Many reptiles, including most iguanas, are physiologically unable to blink, which gives them the characteristic stare. On a recent trip to Costa Rica, I captured an example of that stare on camera, which is the photo displayed in this blog. The psychopath stare, however, has no physiological explanation. It can be used as a tool for control or to signal dominance. Okay. Reptilian parenting and psychopathic mothering. Quote, Unlike a mammal, a lizard does not have parents who protect it and teach it what to do. Anyone who has a psychopathic mother also knows what this feels like. If you had the misfortune of growing up in a home with a psychopathic mother, 
you would know what it is like to feel unsafe and insecure. Quote, what is absent in the reptilian cerebrotype is a parental response to its offspring. Malloy also points out that reptiles do not collect and store food or otherwise provide for future needs for itself or its offspring. All too often, these traits are hallmarks of the psychopathic mother who has an absence of love and an indifference to her children. When attachment is absent. When I was taking the iguana photo, I got within two feet of it and spoke some words to it in a soft voice. It seemed to respond as though it was either listening or showing some sense of attachment. An internet search of reptilian attachment or emotions produces many results that might suggest that attachment was possible. However, according to Malloy, quote, attachment is deeply rooted in both birds and mammals, but is generally absent in reptiles. To that statement, he added this footnote, quote, sometimes people with reptiles as pets will misinterpret their thermotropic, heat-seeking it means, behavior as an emotion related to attachment. So the iguana was not drawn to my gentle voice and kind words after all, but to the heat coming from my close presence. I should have known better, just like the psychopath, only getting close to getting something from you. All right. Let me reread that last sentence. So the iguana, last paragraph. So the iguana was not drawn to my gentle voice and kind words after all, but to the heat coming from my close presence. I should have known better, just like the psychopath, only getting close to get something from you. All right. Interesting. So there are some parallels here between the reptilian brain and the psychopathic brain. Interesting analogies, interesting overlaps. I thought that was interesting to see because psychopathy and sociopathy are such interesting diagnoses to me. Um, misunderstood. Oftentimes, psychopathy and sociopathy, the words are interchanged, even though I believe they have different meanings. I believe that psychopathy has more to do with a, a violent streak. I know that both... Um, personality types, both diagnoses can unfortunately have very positive um, aspects of getting ahead in our society because they don't really care who they step on to, uh, to get ahead. So I thought this was an interesting piece to read about how the psychopathic brain can be seen through a reptilian lens, man. Cool. Moving on. Three ways to not feel overwhelmed anymore. Research explains how to withstand the toughest of emotions. This is by Mark Travers, PhD. All right. Let's learn how to not feel overwhelmed. How about that, psychos? Sounds good to me. We all feel like we're being held hostage by our emotions every now and then. While emotions can be overwhelming at times, most psychologists will tell you that they can also be powerful carriers of information about your mind and personality. However, it can be difficult to understand your emotions from a detached distance if they begin to overpower you. To combat, to combat this vulnerability, here are three research-backed ways you can gain more control over problematic or painful emotions, and build mental fortitude. Oh yeah, let me know about this, man. Number one, undo rejection through objectivity. All right. According to the psychologist Mark Leary of Duke University, rejection can come in six forms. One, criticism. Two, betrayal. Three, active dissociation, for example, a romantic breakup. Four, passive dissociation, like not being included. Five, being unappreciated. Six, being teased. Hurt feelings resulting from any of the mentioned events can result in the experience of the, quote, rejection emotion. 
which can then turn into sadness, anger, or even anxiety. Quote, people don't need to be actually rejected to have the subjective experience of rejection, says Leary. For instance, even though we know that our romantic partners accept and love us, they can unintentionally make us feel rejected and hurt our feelings in certain situations, end quote. In order to tackle our rejection emotion, Leary explains that we must first understand why it is so important for us to feel accepted. Simply put, people feel accepted when they think they have high relational value or worth to another person or group of people. A great deal of our behavior, thought, and emotion, according to Leary, is driven by our need to belong to groups. Okay, that makes sense. That resonates with me. Therefore, Leary advises, if you are experiencing the rejection emotion, make sure that you do not underestimate your relational value because of ambiguous social cues or misinterpreting neutral feedback from others as negative feedback. This is necessary because most people go through life feeling more rejected than they actually are. Quote, Viewed in this way, the first step to address one's concerns with rejection is to examine the evidence as objectively as possible, trying not to read too much negativity into them, warns Leary. Having said that, if you are going through an obvious and painful rejection, here's how you can boost your feeling of acceptance. Some bullet points here. Learn to ignore the negative reaction of people whose opinions of us are unimportant. Yeah, definitely uh, would be skillful to keep that in mind. Next bullet point. Seek connections with people with whom we have a higher relational value. Yep. Next bullet point. If necessary, make changes in ourselves that would increase the degree to which other people value having connections with us. All right. So that's all of the, uh, the number one. The first one, undo rejection through objectivity. Uh, is a good way to not be overpowered and overwhelmed uh, anymore. That's the first one. Number two is to watch closely for emotion dysregulation. Emotion dysregulation is best understood as the repeated encroachment of unhelpful emotional patterns. According to researchers, it lies at the core of a range of psychological disorders. Okay. Emotional dysregulation can be elusive as it can result from multiple causes. According to psychologist Arila Agako, instances of this phenomenon coalesce around five themes. All right. Emotional dysregulation coalesces around five themes. One, brain activation, two, physiology, three, cognition, four, behavior, five, individual experience. Quote, we can draw some conclusions from the overlap between all the different theories out there that try to define emotions and emotion dysregulation, says Agako. Quote, for example, in the case of fear, our amygdala gets activated That's brain activation. We notice a lot of changes in our body, such as our heart rate increasing. That's physiology. We might notice thoughts related to danger. That's cognition. We might have an urge to run away. That's behavior. And we also might have different ways of describing this experience. That's the experiential one. Okay, so that's explaining these five themes and how they're all connected to emotional dysregulation. An emotion can be activated when it is not helpful or needed, or an emotion can fail to activate when it is needed. It is not common for the intensity of an emotion to be too high or too low than what is helpful in the moment. Moreover, emotions can last longer or shorter than we need them to. These things happen to everyone because our brains and bodies aren't perfect. If you are someone who struggles with emotional dysregulation, Agako has the following advice. It's a bunch of bullet points here. 
Make time for the emotion, preferably in a comfortable setting and when you can dedicate a few minutes to it without being interrupted. Next one. Notice precisely what the emotion feels like in your body. Yeah, that's important. Next. Try to name the emotion. Next. Reflect on whether the emotion was justified by the situation or whether it came from somewhere else. Next bullet point. If the emotion is justified, ask yourself what the emotion is telling you you need at that moment. Is it finding social support? Is it figuring out a way to get out of a dangerous situation? Is it apologizing to someone? Or is it something else? Last point. If the emotion isn't justified, ask yourself if there is another way to think of the situation or what you might say to a friend who is in the same situation. Yeah, it sounds a lot to me like practicing some mindfulness. Uh, If you're dealing with emotional dysregulation, focusing on your breath, trying to give yourself enough compassion to acknowledge what's happening, not put too much judgment on yourself for becoming emotionally dysregulated, seeing how you feel physically, understanding that uh, we are not our thoughts, all sorts of good stuff. Um, So that's number two. Watch closely for emotion dysregulation. Then the third way to keep yourself from being overwhelmed with emotion is entitled use the thinking threshold to ride your emotional wave. Okay. Emotions are like waves. They have a beginning, middle, and end. Something, a situation in life, a thought about the past, triggers an emotion inside us. Like waves, emotions rise up, peak, and eventually come back down. A study by psychologist Jennifer Villeux identified the, quote, thinking threshold as a level of emotional intensity about which thinking is impaired, where thinking is driven more by emotion than by logic. When one reaches this point, it is inadvisable to use strategies like cognitive uh, reappraisal that require you to think logically as a means to regulate your emotions. Beyond the thinking threshold, complex cognition is impaired. Interesting. Therefore, using behavioral or sensory strategies is a better idea when above the thinking threshold, like splashing your face with ice water, taking a walk, or getting a hug. Vilu also has the following words of wisdom for anyone who relates to this experience. Number one, sometimes emotions need to be felt. It is okay to just ride it out because the emotion will not last forever. It will come down because that's what emotions do. Waves crest and then recede. Number two, in some cases, cognitive appraisal as a coping strategy may not be the best choice. For instance, cognitive appraisal may lead to rationalizing of an abuser's actions in a predatory or abusive relationship. Number three, when you have made it past the emotional peak, make a concerted effort to use cognitive strategies to avoid such surges in the future. So, when you can think clearly, try to engage in some perspective-taking, problem-solving, or reflection on the experience. Yeah. Wow. These are some great tools to keep in mind uh, if you're dealing with emotional dysregulation, like all of us are uh, at some time, at some points in our life. Conclusion. Emotions are a big part of our lives, whether we like them or not. With a little bit of perspective, planning, and objectivity, they can transform from being our kryptonite to being our North Star. Nice. Nice conclusion there. Yeah, interesting. What do you guys think? Drop me a line at takeyourpillspod at gmail.com. Let's discuss. What have you found has been helpful to keep you from getting overwhelmed? Have you used any of these different strategies 
like undoing rejection through objectivity or watching closely for emotion dysregulation or using the quote-unquote thinking threshold to ride your emotional wave. Interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. All right, we got more stuff to get through. Let's keep going. It's also in Psychology Today. Very good piece here. Entitled, Seven Ways to Deal with High-Conflict Personalities Attempting to Reason with Someone Unreasonable. These seven strategies can help. This is by Tracy S. Hutchinson, Ph.D. All right, psychos, we are going to learn how to deal with high-conflict personalities. Can't hurt to have these tools in our bag. Ugh, because we all have to deal with somebody. And if you are the high-conflict personality, maybe you can use these tools to deal with yourself and decrease your level of conflict with other people. Who knows? I don't know. All right, here we go. In my clinical experience, many clients seek therapy because of ongoing relationships with people with high-conflict personalities. These can include parents, adult children, ex-spouses, and others with whom they must frequently interact. Part of counseling is raising awareness about healthy relationships, and often my clients are surprised to realize that because of these relationships, they have endured chronic emotional turmoil that may have contributed to their mental health symptoms. For example, being raised by high-conflict parents or or cruel and abusive family members can at times result in developmental trauma or even post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, Some of the many symptoms my clients face include depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and chronic feelings of guilt. Often, clients are unaware that it's possible that the high-conflict personalities in their lives, what I call HCPs for short, suffer from undiagnosed personality disorders. Though these disorders are relatively rare, deep-seated personality traits linked to them can cause significant problems in relationships, such as volatility or a tendency to engage in emotional drama, gaslighting, or avoidance. After reflection, many of my clients wisely choose to get off the emotional roller coaster by ending the problematic relationship altogether rather than deal with the situation head on. Okay. Unfortunately, life isn't always that easy. Many of my clients in unhealthy relationships feel they have limited choices or are unable to leave because the relationship may be with a toxic coworker, for example, and they need their job or because they are a grandparent and don't wish to lose contact with their grandchildren in spite of their high-conflict adult child or because family members they truly care for can feel at times impossible to deal with. What should they do then? Relationship success or not? Rupture and repair. Most often, the reason for ongoing unresolved conflict in a relationship is because the high-conflict personality lacks the emotional maturity to engage in consistent relationship repair after a rupture. Okay. The degree of success of a relationship within a couple, family, workplace, or group is how effectively all parties can rupture, have disagreements, it means, and then repair their conflicts. What does that mean? Every relationship has disagreements, but effective conflict resolution leads both parties to feel closer to each other. Clinicians who work with these populations have found that conflict resolution skills can increase warmth, solve problems, help people feel closer to each other, and increase trust over time. The ability to engage in the repair process includes taking responsibility for one's own actions, having empathy, apologizing, and being able to take another's perspective. For example, asking questions like, quote, how did my behavior affect him? Yet these tasks are only possible if you have the skills necessary to carry them out. HCPs, high conflict personalities, generally do not. And if they do, it's to a very limited degree. This deficit often leads those that interact with them over time to struggle with a wide range of negative emotions such as anger and confusion. 
Unfortunately, with HCPs, there tend to be more frequent arguments and ruptures in relationships than there would be otherwise. This may be due to inherent personality deficits that that preclude them from any real chance of effective repair. Researchers argue that personality disorders are primarily genetic, neurological conditions that foster negative patterns of behavior that can damage relationships. People with narcissistic personality disorder, for example, tend to lack empathy to truly understand another's feelings and position, which is the most important step in conflict resolution. They also tend to display a lack of humility and thus may not apologize after harming another or only see the situation from their own perspective. They tend to also have limited awareness of their behaviors toward others and don't often take responsibility for their actions. Can you have a relationship with someone like this? It's possible, but you likely will have to accept the relationship for what it is and learn to approach it differently from your own relationships. Okay, how to approach relationships with high conflict personalities. The first step is assessing how emotional immaturity has shifted the course of your relationship. Beyond that, if you choose to proceed further, the following seven strategies can help you navigate the situation. All right, here we go. Number one, identify the presence or absence of rupture and repair skills. All right, does the person possess the characteristics to engage in effective relationship rupture and repair? Do they take responsibility for their actions? Do they have empathy? And do they listen and validate your position? Are they emotionally mature? If not, if you want to maintain a relationship, your strategies must reflect this reality. Okay, so can they get through the rupture and repair skills? Do they have that? Do you find if you're getting in fights with this person... You can come to some sort of resolution that apologies happen. Next step. Next strategy. Foster radical acceptance. It is important to accept reality exactly the way that it is without expecting change. The DBT principle of radical acceptance DBT standing for, I believe, Dialectic Behavioral Therapy. It's a type of therapy. Defined by Marsha Lenahan, PhD, means to accept not only things, but people for who they are. This includes accepting their limitations and changing your own expectations. Radical in this definition means all the way. Complete, all the way acceptance. And understanding that someone is an HCP, it's a high conflict personality, and then adjusting your expectations of that person accordingly. Okay. With HCPs, this means accepting that their behaviors and ways of communicating and interpreting reality will likely not change. What can change are your strategies and understanding of their personality limitations. All right. Three. Grieve. Grieving is not always limited to those who have died. Grief also exists while people are living. Often, grieving the loss of who you thought a person was and the relationship you wish to have but can't is an important component of the healing process. Many of my clients yearn for a better relationship with people they should be closer to. For example, a client may wish they had a normal mother that can share in the joy of major milestones, like having a baby. They wonder why this seems to be impossible no matter how hard they try. As you grieve, it's important to remember that even though the closeness you want to have with the sibling, parent, or partner may never happen, this does not mean you cannot have a relationship. However, part of grieving is coming to terms with the fact that the relationship may lack what you truly want or need. Yep. Number four, realize you you will never be able to reason with the unreasonable. This idea has been referred to as the healing fantasy in which you hope that someday the other person will suddenly come to their senses if you're just able to make your point, convince them how how much 
they've harmed you, and so on. If they could, they likely would. But in most cases, they are simply unable to because their personality and emotional immaturity, because they're unable to because their personality and emotional immaturity. Letting go of the fantasy and wishful thinking is key. So it's having accurate perspective on what these people are able to do and provide and not provide emotionally. Number five, detach and observe during interactions. Mindfulness skills can help achieve this goal, particularly the skill of observing what is happening around you and detaching from it emotionally. If you find yourself becoming emotional, remind yourself to detach or disengage and communicate in a factual manner. All right, that's good. Another mechanism we got here. Um, Let's see here. Number six, distance and doses. Distance can refer to either physical or emotional distance, depending on your personal boundaries and what will help you stay healthy and emotionally safe. For example, setting time limits on interactions may help manage the relationship. This may include only interacting on the phone for 15 minutes, limiting text messages, or even not responding to emotionally laden texts or emails. All right. Number seven, manage the relationship. Do not engage. Managing the relationship means focusing on the outcome of an interaction, not the relationship itself. It also means setting reasonable goals for what you can expect from any given interaction. Imagine, for example, that it's a holiday and you're visiting your high-conflict parents. Your goal in this case should be something like, quote, have a nice visit. The goal should not be to, quote, work out things emotionally. Or you have not radically accepted the situation or changed your expectations. Yeah. This is a hard step for most of my clients initially. Managing the relationship can include redirecting the conversation to lighter topics, distractions, or common goals such as a shared activity. A successful outcome wouldn't mean that you and your parents resolve your problems, but it could be that you have a nice dinner with no conflict or emotional drama, and often that's enough. Yep. Yep, that is some really, really great tools that you can have in your bag to deal with a high-conflict personality. You have to just acknowledge it. It, Basically, it is what it is. This is a, a very long, much more insightful way of saying it is what it is, and here's how you can deal with that in order to keep yourself from getting emotionally dysregulated and really upset. Great piece. Great piece. Wow. All right, this next one is from SciTech Daily. And uh, it's a quick piece, but it's, uh, it's eye-opening, troubling. It's entitled... Shocking new study finds that 43.5% of rivers worldwide have an alarming amount of pharmaceutical pollution. What? According to the scientists, pharmaceutical contamination endangers a huge portion of the world's rivers. Oh my God. How pharmaceutical ingredients are affecting the world's rivers. Ugh. Pharmaceutical chemicals in prescription and over-the-counter medications are released into the environment during their manufacturing, usage, and disposal, particularly in surface waters. According to research findings recently published in Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry, pharmaceutical pollution is a worldwide issue that is likely harming the health of the world's rivers. This is not good. I know that medication is important, but oh my goodness, couldn't we have more of a preventative society so we didn't have to have so much medication constantly being pumped into us? And I say this as someone who takes medication every day. I feel so conflicted about it because I have such angst towards the pharmaceutical industry too, but you've heard me talk about that before. Concerning quantities of pharmaceutical components were found in about 43.5% 
of the 1,052 sites across 104 nations that were evaluated for the research. 23 pharmacological ingredients, including compounds from the antidepressant, antimicrobial, antihistamine, benzodiazepine, painkiller, and other classes, occurred at concentrations above what is considered safe. Quote, This is the first truly global assessment of the impacts of single pharmaceuticals and mixtures of pharmaceuticals in riverine systems, said corresponding author Alejandra Boazas Monroe, a Ph.D. student at the University of York. Quote, Our findings show that a very high proportion of rivers around the world are at threat from pharmaceutical pollution. We should therefore be doing much more to reduce the emissions of these substances into the environment. Wow. I sort of have heard there's like trace amounts of things in our in our water, trace amounts of pharmaceutical residue in our water, but uh in our drinking water. But wow, this is uh this is a big deal, man. 43.5% of the rivers worldwide from this from this uh from this evaluation i mean are we over medicated as a society or is there a way that these pharmaceutical companies can test these medications in such a fashion that they're not getting into our major bodies of water to unsafe levels oh it's troubling troubling indeed that was just a quick article Worth knowing about. Do I have a good answer <laughs> of what to do? No. Um, is it troubling? Yes. But hey, maybe the robots can help us, right? Here's this next article. Harvard developed AI identifies the shortest path to human happiness. Yeah. Maybe the Harvard AI can make everybody happy real quick so we don't need to be on pharmaceuticals anymore and then the rivers won't get get polluted with their byproducts or whatever. Um, Doubtful. Okay, let me keep an open mind about this because my understanding of AI is that it's, uh, you know, it's kind of garbage that you're not really able to figure out how to program the AIs properly, but this is interesting. To find the shortest path to human happiness, holy shit, it's interesting. So it says the researchers created a digital model of psychology aimed to improve mental health. The system offers superior personalization and identifies the shortest path toward a cluster of mental stability for any individual. Whoa. Deep longevity in collaboration with Harvard Medical School presents a deep learning approach to mental health. Deep Longevity is the name of the company. Deep Longevity has published a paper in Aging-US outlining a machine learning approach to human psychology in collaboration with Nancy Etkoff, PhD, Harvard Medical School, an authority on happiness and beauty. Wow, that's pretty cool to become an authority on happiness and beauty. The authors created two digital models of human psychology based on data from the from the midlife in the United States study. Okay, the midlife must be some study or something like that from the midlife in the United States study. The first model is an ensemble of deep neural networks that predicts respondents' chronological age and psychological well-being in 10 years using information from a psychological survey. This model depicts the trajectories of the human mind as it ages. It also demonstrates that the capacity to form meaningful connections as well as mental autonomy and environmental mastery develops with age. It also suggests that the emphasis on personal progress is constantly declining, but the sense of having a purpose in life only fades after 40 to 50 years. 
These results add to the growing body of knowledge on socio-emotional selectivity and hedonic adaptation in the context of adult personality development. All right. I didn't totally understand that, but uh, let's keep going. Oh, there's a graph here that sort of shows something. And uh, I'll just read the, uh, the little like, uh, blurb there. The article describes an AI-based recommendation engine that can estimate one's psychological age and future well-being based on a constructed psychological survey. The AI uses the information from a respondent to place them on a 2D map of all possible psychological profiles and derive ways to improve their long-term well-being. This model of human psychology can be used in self-help digital applications and during therapist sessions. Okay. The second model is a self-organizing map that was created to serve as the foundation for a recommendation engine for mental health applications. This unsupervised learning algorithm splits all respondents into clusters depending on their likelihood of developing depression and determines the shortest path toward a cluster of mental stability for any individual. Alex Zavaranikov the chief longevity officer of Deep Longevity elaborates, quote, existing mental health applications offer generic advice that applies to everyone yet fits no one. We have built a system that is scientifically sound and offers superior personalization, end quote. To demonstrate the system's potential, Deep Longevity has released a web service called Future Self, a free online application that lets users take the psychological test described in the original publication. At the end of the assessment, users receive a report with insights aimed at improving their long-term mental well-being and can enroll in a guidance program that provides them with a steady flow of AI-chosen recommendations. Data obtained on future self will be used to further develop Deep Longevity's digital approach to mental health. All right. So Future Self, that's their free online mental health service that offers guidance based on a psychological profile assessment by AI. The core of Future Self is represented by a self-organizing map that classifies respondents and identifies the most suitable ways to improve one's well-being. Interesting. A leading biogerontology expert Professor Vadim Gladyshev from Harvard Medical School comments on the potential of future self. Quote, This study offers an interesting perspective on psychological age, future well-being, and risk of depression and demonstrates a novel application of machine learning approaches to the issues of psychological health. It also broadens how we view aging and transitions through life stages and emotional states, end quote. The authors plan to continue studying human psychology in the context of aging and long-term well-being. They are working on a follow-up study on the effect of happiness on psychological measures of aging. The study was funded by the National Institute on Aging. All right, interesting stuff. So that's what's going on the AI front in trying to identify the shortest path to human happiness by by uh, identifying things people can do to keep from becoming depressed. Pretty fascinating. Pretty interesting. All right. So, okay, we're at about 49 minutes. It means we got time for another piece. Bonus, bonus piece to read. Let's do, let's see what we got here. Um, oh, this will be interesting. Um, oh, okay. Here's one entitled two things most therapists do, but shouldn't. Oh, this will be interesting to learn about from this perspective, this side of things, what's going on. Uh, let's get right into this is also in psychology today. Um, two things most therapists do, but shouldn't therapist isolation can lead to unintentional ethics and boundary violations. This is by David J. Uh, Lee, Ph.D. Some key points. 
Becoming a psychotherapist, especially in private practice, can be isolating. Talking with our partners about our experience in therapy can be accidental violations of confidentiality and privacy. The best thing is for therapists to share their feelings rather than discuss information about their patients. Giving advice or opinions to non-patients may constitute ethical breaches. It is best to give general educational information and referrals. All right, here we go. Therapists are human beings. Many therapists work in isolated situations in private practice where they spend all day seeing patient after patient. Surprisingly, therapists can be starved for connection and support for them as a person, and this can lead to therapists making two common professional mistakes. Talking about patients to spouses and parents. The therapist's partners ask them how their day was, just like we all do. And sometimes when it's been a hard day or a magnificent day, the therapist wants to share. Unfortunately, many therapists do in ways they shouldn't. In my experience, therapists seldom share a patient's name or identifying information. This would be a clear and blatant breach of confidentiality. But things like, quote, oh, I saw this poor man going through a really painful divorce and I just feel so bad for him can slip out and feel innocent. And it usually is. But it's also a violation of privacy. I mean, these people are only human. I see what's going on here. You know what I mean? Like this could I really see how this could happen. You guys, you know. A therapist I supervised was once at a restaurant with their spouse and had a conversation about a case they were struggling with. A couple with domestic violence, substance abuse problems, and anger who kept erupting in therapy. The therapist didn't, didn't, didn't describe the couple, their names, ages, or identifying information, but they repeated a certain specific phrase that the husband kept shouting at his wife and how the therapist struggled to calm them down. A few moments later, as the family sitting behind them left their table, one of the adults leaned in and whispered, quote, that couple you're working with are my cousins. I'm so glad you're helping them. They really need it, end quote. Whoa. That specific oh-so-recognizable phrase was apparently one the husband used around other people, not just in therapy. Even if the therapist doesn't share information in a public setting, they may put their partner in an awkward position, especially if their partner accidentally encounters a patient. In small communities, this happens more than you might think. Quote, oh, your last name is the same as my therapist. Do you know them? End quote. These issues are even more critical when working with minority and marginalized communities. Sadly, I've seen cases where a licensure complaint was filed during a divorce battle for a therapist sharing confidential information with their former spouse. The best thing when the therapist is asked about their day is for them to talk about themselves, not their patients. Makes sense. Quote, I get sad sometimes hearing so many hard things from people, and I'm glad I get to come home to you and get love and support. End quote. Quote. I wish our healthcare system didn't make it so difficult for people to get help. I get frustrated having to deal with so many hoops I have to jump through. Because these are examples of, 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 of how a therapist can respond to their uh, significant other. Quote, I feel really good because I'm seeing some really positive changes in the people I get to work with. And it feels like I'm starting to get good at this. All right. Here's the other uh, problem sometimes that uh, therapists make do. Giving professional advice or wisdom to friends and family members. Because the therapist's work happens in private, behind closed doors, therapists rarely get public acknowledgement of their skills. We don't get to show off or even, quote, bring our kids to work to let them see us doing what we do. So it can feel awfully tempting to trot out our expertise in informal settings and get acclamation and respect as an expert. The classic example is the therapist at a cocktail party and, an, and a new acquaintance says, quote, say, you're a therapist. Here's something my son is dealing with. Do you think you should have, do you think they should have a diagnosis? This sounds innocuous, right? But unfortunately, if that person follows the therapist's advice and it goes badly, the person can complain to the therapist's licensure board that this conversation constituted a professional consultation. In such cases, it's best to, often, to offer referrals. 
in this example, perhaps offer some explanation of how diagnosing works so that the father can decide how to seek professional help. Clinicians may offer general education to assist an individual in knowing how to seek help, but it's best that the therapist not act as they, as they would in therapy. The general public doesn't understand that psychotherapy is a fiduciary relationship where the clinician is charged with prioritizing the patient's needs over their own and recognizing the limits of their scope. But in informal interactions, the clinician may not say important things or the, acquaint- or the acquaintance may not reveal critical things that would alter the clinician's opinion, leading to the clinician offering inadequate recommendations. Even worse, that person may not seek professional help because the therapist didn't tell them to or the therapist didn't convey a sense of seriousness. This is one important reason that professional opinions be given within the context of a professional relationship. This makes sense. Some healthcare professionals live stream conversations about mental health with gamers and they are adamant that the interactions are not therapy, though the interactions get clinical and involve discussion of emotional and psychological needs as well as potential diagnoses. In one tragic case, a gamer interviewed in this manner later died by suicide. These types of interactions may may increase awareness of mental health and destigmatize therapy, as is the hope and intent. Unfortunately, this may also lead to people thinking that they have received mental health treatment and that they don't need to see a real therapist or seek clinical treatment where more options such as medications, support services, and intensive referrals may be available. Yeah. Public live-streamed conversations don't constitute a clinical assessment required for giving individualized clinical opinions and recommendations. Ethically, Clinicians may offer general health advice to people not in a doctor-patient relationship, but must be cautious about offering specific clinical opinions without conducting a clinical evaluation and having consent to render such recommendations. Yeah, that is very, very true and very, very important. A friend at my gym once asked me for help and said he was concerned that one of his teen son's friends might be suicidal. I shared information with him about resources in the community and how to refer the young man to them. I also gave him a brief overview of basic suicide awareness information, such as that asking about suicidal thoughts doesn't cause suicide and is one of the best ways to help people get help. But I didn't ask for more details about the young man or offer an opinion as to whether the boy might or might not be suicidal or what he might be struggling with. Expecting therapists to not share their work experiences with important people in their lives may feel like artificial, antiquated barriers. But psychotherapy is a unique, artificial relationship that works because of these boundaries. Protecting confidentiality allows people to come to therapy and share the things they keep most secret. Requiring clinicians to reserve Specific clinical opinions for people they have fully assessed protects the public from armchair psychologists. It helps therapists to increase their effectiveness by ensuring we only render opinions with adequate information. But therapists are human. Temptations around these issues are real, and therapists aren't incompetent or deficient for struggling with these temptations. I recommend that most therapists have professional consultation groups, whether formal or informal, with other licensed clinicians with whom they can share these issues and discuss them with ethical and confidential boundaries. Yep, that seems like a good resource to take advantage of. Don't let our isolation lead us to violate important ethical boundaries or put our spouses, friends, and partners in complex dilemmas. The confidentiality mandates on licensed therapists don't extend to our spouses. They're not honorary therapists. Yep. Interesting. So that's something therapists are struggling with, you guys. Interesting point of view to hear about, right, psychos? Huh. So, yeah. Everybody's struggling. Everybody's trying to make it work. Therapists are just humans, too. And some therapists are good. Some therapists suck. Let's be honest with it. Just like anything else. 
And, uh, you know, I feel fortunate when I have a good one. Unfortunate when I don't. Feel fortunate to have a good psych- psychiatrist. Sucks when you don't. But we have to be proactive about our mental health and uh, seek out good healthcare providers if we're lucky enough to get them in our broken healthcare system. Hopefully, this podcast uh, helps uh, helps us helps create a sense of community around people with mental health issues, so we can learn about it, have some laughs along the way, man. That's what Take Your Pills Psychopath is all about. Uh, And this has been another Patreon-only episode of Take Your Pills Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. What? Trademark. Your guys' support is so appreciated. You guys truly rock. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Spread the word about the podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, make sure to leave a five-star rating and leave me a comment. It would be really cool. And for your viewing pleasure on YouTube, you can watch my stand-up comedy special. Just type John F. O'Donnell into YouTube. You'll find it right there. It's called The Manic Depressive Chocolate Fountain Operator. If you enjoy it, leave a comment there. That's all. And uh, be well. All right. I love you guys. Bye.